Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, the technology revolution of the past, I'd say, 10 years uh, has really transformed Africa as much as it's transformed anywhere in the world. Uh, I mean, here in Southeast Asia, there is no way to escape it. Everybody's got mobile devices, the rise of YouTube, social networks, constant network, you know, kind of attachments. And in Africa now, we're starting to see it. You know, Africa was long considered to be the laggard in technology. You have these wonderful maps of the world where you see the kind of the, the server hotspots and server activities. And for a long time, Africa was dark. Uh, that is no longer the case. And in many ways, in so many ways, it's because of the Chinese that those server farms are opening up in Africa, that the engagement on Facebook, that the mobile revolution is taking off. That is, it's the Chinese who are building the server networks through Huawei, the mobile networks with Huawei and ZTE. They're selling the low-cost devices that are designed for emerging markets in places like Africa. So in so many ways, the Chinese are helping to transform the ICT revolution, Internet Communications Technology Revolution. They are by no means alone in this space, but they're playing a very important role. But, but, with the Chinese comes some good. So in the case of the technology, which is really wonderful, people now can kind of speak to other people over the horizon for the very first time. They can engage networks, they can communicate, they can get better jobs, they can kind of find prices for agricultural and commodity goods. Everything that we can do on the internet, the Chinese are making it possible to do. But they are also bringing with them some of their more hostile practices in some countries. The oppression that we see in the digital space and the content space and the freedom of speech that is so common and typical in China is now being imported into parts of Africa. So with the good does come the bad. Kobus, it is a mixed blessing, but I guess in some ways that's what we can say about you know everything with regards to the Chinese in Africa. It's never clear-cut or black and white. Yeah, I would probably push back a little bit against the idea, the simple idea of, of Chinese oppression being being imported into Africa. You know, kind of, I, I think uh, I would probably make a, a, a bit of a distinction between between the the means of oppression and you know, kind of, and the the intention of oppression. You know, obviously, lots of uh, lots of African governments are very oppressive. Um, I think China is frequently they provides the tools. Um, it provides new and more, you know, kind of more technologically advanced tools, which then land in an Af in a complicated African political landscape, uh, where they frequently kind of use to the ill. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, kind of, I, I, I and I completely agree with you that that in a lot of ways, like the the same engagement, the same kind of networks bring both both freedom and oppression to the same country frequently. Well, we're going to have a little bit of dispute about that because I don't think I fully agree with you on that. But we luckily. Uh, have somebody who can help kind of clarify this for us. And uh, we are thrilled to have back on the show uh, Ingenio Gariadano. Did I say your name correct? Close? Oh, 95% okay. of it. 95%. My apologies. Ingenio <laughs> is, you know, also in Wits University, right in the same department, in fact, as Cobus in the media and communications uh, department there uh, in Johannesburg. And he's also uh, an associate research fellow in new media and human rights at the University of Oxford in the UK. And the reason why we've invited Ingenio onto the show today is because he has just come out with a brand new book, uh, The Politics of Technology in Africa, and rarely does a title of a book have three of my favorite things in the title itself. So congratulations and welcome back to the show, Ingenio. 
Thank you very much. It feels great to be back, and now I'm also much closer to Cobus. So, so great to be talking from this this time. Nice. Okay. Well, let's get started on this dispute a little bit. This kind of you know different interpretations as to what the Chinese are doing in Africa with regards to technology, and we'll get to the big picture of the technology movement. But this, you know, so my sense is that the Chinese. Uh, are not only importing the technology, but are also importing the kind of know-how in places like Ethiopia, uh, and there are other places. I think Egypt and Tunisia are some of the other places where the Chinese are selling some of their technology, and also the deep packet inspection. They're selling also the methods and the tools for you know controlling mobile phone networks, being able to turn off certain regions, for example, where there's unrest. And this is something they've done very effectively in China, for example, in Xinjiang in the West. In the, when there's Muslim unrest, they're able to kind of darken out just that province. And I think they're bringing, and I've heard that they're bringing some of that know-how to places like Ethiopia, which also have quite a bit of unrest. Kobus, though, says it's the technology, and they're not necessarily bringing in that know-how, per se. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Kobus. Uh, where do you kind of fall? You've yeah, been doing no, research no, on I, this. What I'm, uh, uh, sorry, no, just to clarify, um, I, um, I, I what, what I meant is that you know, kind of. I, th- I, I would be, uh, be. I would be aware of of the idea that that Africa is a kind of a blank slate. You know, kind of where where you know, kind of the the, the Chinese arrive and they bring their oppressive ways with them. Um, you know, kind of like I think there were plenty of oppressive ways in Africa already, um, and frequently these these technologies get get spun. To, to fit African political realities and, you know, kind of an, and African um, power blocks um, and African kind of elites make of these these technologies what they want. Okay. Um, but I mean that that's just that's just my my view. Fair. Um, Eugenio, um, in in your in your work, I wonder if you could t- talk us a little bit for for beginners, give us a little bit of a thumbnail outline of what is the internet situation in Ethiopia and like how does the how does government oppression kind of fit into it? Yeah. Well, to do that, I will take you in a bit of a journey that cuts into into the debates that you have been having, because uh, and especially resonates with uh, with your idea that I very much cobus that I very much sympathize with. There is no blank slate. And when I started, this book has been long in the making. When I started researching uh, the politics of technology in Ethiopia, in particular. Um, the main actors were a lot of like consultants with, uh, uh, with suits coming from the World Bank or from the ITU, trying to convince Ethiopians that they should jump uh, on their own, and when I say their, uh, mean the World Bank uh, version of the information society. And already without the Chinese, the Ethiopians pushed back uh, quite a bit. And that doesn't mean simply resisting and saying no to technology, but uh, trying to get to a point where they could master that technology in ways that could fit in their own state-building and nation-building plan. And that was an incredibly interesting journey to follow. So uh, there could have been very little skills, very little understanding of the tools, but there was definitely a political understanding of what technology could do, both to empower the government at the time, but also to destabilize it. And uh, that journey has not ended yet. And to continue on that journey is uh, in 2005, there was uh, no sign of Chinese engineers uh, in, uh, in the Ethiopian landscape. Uh, and it was so interesting. I, I used to live in Ethiopia uh, between 2005 and 2008, and I went back uh, for a longer period of time uh, uh, since uh, 
to see China appearing on the horizon and immediately turning the tide into a different direction in ways that we're not trying at all to impose a particular view of trying to, to teach lessons that were coming from China, actually quite the opposite, but definitely to engage with that political vision that was very much emanating from the center of the Ethiopian governments uh, that didn't resonate with uh, uh, Western donors, uh, but was very much uh, uh, driven through with resources uh, by the Ethiopian governments and later on by the Chinese. Let's not forget that China has given, since 2006 uh, up to now, more than $3 billion to the Ethiopian government to complete the overall telecommunication system in the country. Let's talk a little bit about the differences between the Western view of technology and the Chinese view. And we can expand it beyond Ethiopia. But oftentimes in the West, uh, particularly the United States, we look to technology as a kind of all-encompassing solution. And there's this uh, romanticization, idealization of what technology can do in, in places like Africa. So, for example, during the Arab Spring, part of the kind of State Department line coming out of Washington was by empowering people with connectivity, it will promote democracy. And there is this kind of notion that the State Department can facilitate the overthrow of oppressive and repressive governments by, you know, wiring up the community, giving them access to the Internet. There's a fantastic author by the name of Evgeny Morozov. He's an analyst who used to be at Harvard. I don't know where he is today. And he writes about how that's just complete and total rubbish, that when you give people access to the Internet, the first things that they'll do is they'll go to download porn, they'll look at play games, they'll watch YouTube. You know, that's kind of where human nature devolves to. Uh, he used the example that during the Cold War, when East Germans, East Germans had access to West German content, they liked watching, you know, soap operas and dramas and things like that. The Chinese seem to have a far more pragmatic view of technology, where it's a tool, it's much more functional. Obviously, they don't want to use it for overthrowing, you know, repressive you know, non-democratic governments because, well, that's them. So talk to us a little bit about what you found in terms of these two worldviews of how both the West, mainly the United States, and China sees the role of technology in a place like Africa. Yeah, this is a very interesting lens through which to look at uh, China's uh, uh, entrance in uh, Africa or relevance for Africa. And uh, and uh, I, But I also would like to, to talk later on uh, about the similarities, because it's something that is not talked about. You know, uh, the West and China are often portrayed uh, as two opposite of, uh, um, of, um, of the spectrum. But there are some probably unintended consequences uh, of their certainly different uh, approach uh, to technology that we are seeing in Africa and we could see elsewhere. So starting from, from the differences, uh, um, it's the problem with the Western approach so far, and things have been changing somehow, has been a very keen understanding of the politics that comes with technology. And uh, um, the Cold War, as Eugeni Morris have said, uh, uh, mentality has unfortunately shaped also the thinking into the digital era. And uh, the simple narrative of uh, unfettered activists uh, that are using technology to liberate themselves and their fellows from oppressive regime uh, is definitely a powerful one, and one in which we would all like to to believe in. China is very different on, on that regard. Uh, in a way, its, uh, its relationship with technology is uh, uh, much more straightforward, is, uh, there is much less hypocrisy, and uh, but 
the result of these is further empowering uh, those uh, um, structures that already detain power. Um, and here, maybe we're already moving towards uh, the, um, the second bit where the similarities uh, are becoming more apparent. Uh, um, by doing so, uh, they are not uh, just the Chinese to be supporting uh, existing power structures, uh, but they have uh, a very long list of allies. They're less visible, probably, but they do come from the West. And all those companies that sell uh, uh, surveillance technology and technology for censoring content, uh, and some of these technology, have, some of these companies happen to be in Italy or in the UK, and so we get to the paradox by which we have uh, uh, Chinese engineers that are using Italian software in order to spy on political opponents living in Ethiopia or in the diaspora. Eugenio, um, like continuing on that point, um, in in the book you made, you you make. You argue, which is I found very interesting, that the Ethiopian government, when they talk about kind of unpopular decisions, like for example, um, the censoring of of critics or the jailing of journalists um, and bloggers, they tend not to use the Chinese approach of just simply or align. They don't tend not to align themselves with with China and simply, you know, kind of simply like this is the and these people broke the law. And instead, they they um, exploit ambiguities in Western discourses around around technology and security and so on. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's one of the most interesting takeaway from, from the book and other research uh, I have been working on. Because despite China uh, has been recognized uh, as a very successful example of uh, uh, technology diffusion and uh, uh, policies to, to, to get people uh, on, on board and part of the information society. At the same time, uh, uh, it's still, when it comes to freedom of expression, it's still uh, a model that can't be openly recognized as such, even by authoritarian regimes. So, so far in the research, I've never found uh, uh, um, head of states or uh, uh, political figures openly saying, well, uh, we are following the Chinese model. We are going to do what China's done because we recognize this as a feasible one. So uh, China does, despite the, the resilience of its model, uh, has not managed to make it a model, something that other people would visibly uh, try to emulate. A different story is for informal conversation with some of these individuals uh, where a different kind of take uh, is, uh, is advanced. The paradox, uh, just apparent, is when censorship and surveillance uh, are uh, um, with measures uh, support leading to uh, surveillance and censorship uh, are adopted, uh, is a different kind of agenda that is mentioned, is the anti-terrorism agenda, the agenda you know, that some refer to as the securitization of foreign policy or securitization of development. So we get to the paradox of head of states using the U.S. support the narrative against terrorism to justify suppressions of freedom of expression that end up relying on Chinese technologies to get actually on, on uh, uh, implemented. And these, I'm usually optimistic when it comes to technology and technology diffusion. There are tons of examples coming from Africa of uh, local innovation, uh, amazing uh, new tools and applications that are being used to empower individuals. But if we take these two elements together, these two different forces, uh, the future of the information societies in Africa, at least in some regime, doesn't look right at all. Well, let's pick up on that because I think 
it's very interesting to kind of put some context around this and talking about the leadership and whether or not they understand the technology. And the most glaring example of an African leader who did not understand the technology was Hosni Mubarak uh, at the end of his reign in Egypt during the Arab Spring. And one of the things that, that kind of stood out for me is that Hosni Mubarak was looking for the organizers of the Arab Spring in Cairo. And there weren't any. It was the network that organized it. It was social media. It was mobile phones. And it was, he, he misread the times because he didn't understand the technology. And that was, you know, contributing to his downfall because he didn't know how to respond to what was happening and to those events. One of the problems with Africa is uh, the lack of governance has led to a number of leaderships that are, you know, undemocratic, anti-democratic, or you know, not being refreshed enough. You know, Paul Kagame is a good example in Rwanda. He may have started out democratic, but, you know, now we're, we're a long ways away from democracy in Rwanda. Uh, you know, Joseph Kabila, obviously, in the DRC and whatnot. So in your research for the book, The Politics of Technology in Africa, I'm curious, do you, did you get a sense that inside these governments, whether it's at the top level or at the sub-ministerial level or wherever, that, that they understood the technology that was now shaping their, their countries and that they were using themselves to kind of inform, to educate, but also to repress? Well, this is a difficult question. I will try to answer it in, in, in two main ways. Um, looking at the case of Ethiopia, but also the case of Rwanda that you mentioned would fit, uh, I would say that leaders have become very skillful in playing with uh, the symbols of democracy and uh, election is uh, one of the main ones. Uh, the past election in Ethiopia were won by the incumbent party by 100%, but they still were recognized a free and fair election. And, uh, and also international observers say there was not cheating in the ballots. Um, the elections, even online, uh, we completed recently a project called Mecha Child, which means uh, tolerance in America, where we mapped uh, online conversation on Facebook around the elections. Uh, and these become uh, secured spaces, spaces where um, um, netizens, where people going online to express uh, their views and their frustration, uh, uh, sort of lose hope that anything can be done. So there is these spaces, these moments, uh, where uh, states, governments, power is on full alert. And it's very difficult to, let's say, hack those. At the same time, as we see from the recent protest, uh, well, not that recent, it has been going on for the past few months, uh, in Oromia, for example, outside of these events that have become like the symbols of uh, the supposed democracy, uh, people still revolt. The same things that happened in, in Egypt. There was no elections. Nobody believed in elections. Uh, but uh, the sense of disempowerment and lack of voice uh, still find ways uh, online and offline uh, in uh, uh, leading to outcomes that are potentially very dramatic. So as, as much as there is understanding of the tools, there is never complete control. So you can secure an election both online and offline, but at the same, line, at the same time, if there is suppression uh, elsewhere, uh, something is going to happen, even in uh, the most suppressive of the regimes. And the second bit of the answer is uh, at, this, at the core of the book, uh, I'm talking about something that is more difficult to explain because there are not many examples like this. Uh, there are two very large technical projects. Uh, uh, let's say one is an e-government project uh, connecting the center of the government with the local administration. The other one uh, is, uh, a, uh, let's say, e-learning project uh, uh, based on uh, 
hundred, thousands of plasma TV screens in all secondary schools in the country. And these are very good examples of how the government, a government, has appropriated technology so that messages that are emanating from the center of power can reach down to the grassroots. So many individuals in the public, in the civil service, uh, could be exposed on a regular basis to the very voice of the prime minister that was instructing them in what they should be doing. At the same time, high school students uh, would be trained not by teacher that could provide context to what they were saying, but again, by sort of pre-recorded content, content uh, that was shaping minds in a particular direction. So this is a very unique, bit scary, but somehow quite effective uh, ways in which uh, technology is understood is shaped uh, to fit a very specific agenda. Um, to move to the Chinese side of this of this equation, um, you make very interesting points in the book that there's some that, that breaks down the the kind of monolithic view of of China as an actor, and especially in you know in relation to obviously the difference between Chinese financing and then the Chinese contractors that implement the the projects, but also within the contracts the differences between state owned um, companies ZTE and the private company Huawei. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the differences between Huawei and ZTE in, South in, in Ethiopia and how they see each other. That has been very interesting and it's been, uh, you know, this relationship is very much uh, uh, in the making. ZTE has been uh, the first Chinese uh, uh, company to come to Ethiopia, supported by a very large uh, uh, um, um, loan from uh, the Chinese government, uh, $1.6 billion. And, uh, and Huawei came only at a later stage. Uh, the company, as it has been definitely the case in China, but is all also happening often in Africa, have been competing against each other for resources. So the image of uh, the Chinese government uh, directing Chinese companies uh, doesn't really apply uh, to Ethiopia. Uh, one very interesting takeaway from Ethiopia that doesn't necessarily apply to other countries uh, is that, uh, uh, and, and sort of uh, challenges the, the Chinese approach of no strings attached. So I do believe, and the finding that I collected uh, uh, support the idea that China didn't come with a template, just simply tried to fulfill the demands of the Ethiopian government. So, but the Ethiopian government has tried to hold on a monopoly of telecommunication that has not worked anywhere, including in China. And the result of these is that there was no uh, interest from the side of ZTE to innovate, to produce uh, uh, reliable services. Uh, uh, and uh, in the regime of no competition, the, the, the quality of the service of the, uh, now it's called ATO Telecom, used to be ETC, has been one of the worst uh, in the continent. Uh, when Huawei came into the picture, it was to produce artificially somehow some of the competition that could not be allowed by the market. Uh, but the relationship with ZTE got so sour because uh, there was no incentive on either side uh, to uh, to improve uh, that at some point the government became so frustrated with ZTE that it rescinded the contract uh, just last year and uh, turned it back uh, to Ericsson, to, so to uh, European uh, uh, telecom uh, uh, company, and uh, so the, the, to, to sum up, uh, uh, 
it's the, the complete ends off type of approach. We get uh, everything that is being asked. doesn't seem to work either. There's so many lessons at technical, at the practical level that China could teach to a country like Ethiopia. China has opened up and liberalized its own telecommunication market slowly in a way that could, uh, could be managed. Uh, but at the end of the, the, the day was quite successful. And by not suggesting uh, or not enforcing this kind of policy on Ethiopia, everybody at the end of the day were worse off. Kobus, it's a shame that we don't have more time because we've really focused on Huawei and ZTE and the government side of things, when in fact that's really only part of the story when we talk about the Chinese influence and impact on technology in Africa. Uh, WeChat, which is on the software side, which is social networking, is now trying to make its way into Africa. WeChat, of course, is partially South African owned by, uh, by Naspers. Uh, there's also Baidu, the Chinese search giant that is now has a North African service that they're kind of trying to big out. And the Chinese software firms like Alibaba uh, are, are trying to make their way in. And there's all sorts of e-commerce platforms that are now kind of, you know, coming online. And that's the private sector that's bringing a lot of this. And I think there's this real dynamism in the private sector, whether it's from the hardware devices like Xiaomi, who's now opening up its first retail stores in South Africa, Huawei, ZTE, which are opening up research centers around the around the continent. And so it seems to me, Kobus, that this is a far more nuanced and textured story than, than we have made it out to be in our discussion. And oftentimes it gets overlooked uh, by the public at large. I also think so. There's the there's one massive gap in in the the talking about all of this, and this is and that is what what ordinary Africans are doing with these networks and devices, um, because it's one thing to bring something like WeChat to Africa. It's something completely different to see what. Africans actually do with that technology, um, whether they're going to use it the same way that, as Chinese do, for example, which I, I would greatly doubt. Um, so I think it's going to be that's the new frontier for research. I think is to see to see how these networks and how these devices actually land on the ground in Africa and how they're going to be used in the future. Well, Ingenio, give us the the kind of the the short medium term forecast that you see for answering Cobus's question. Well, I think um, China has shown greater adaptability to different markets. You know, we talked a lot about Ethiopia or repressive regimes. Uh, a completely different story can be told uh, uh, for Ghana or for Kenya, where there is very little state intervention and most of the partnership have happened at the level of the private sector and uh, and uh, also, you know, local small entrepreneurs. Uh, so I agree with Kobus that uh, there's going to be a lot of low level innovation that can't be really captured by, uh, you know, foreign policy analysts uh, that has to be seen on the ground in everyday life. Uh, uh, one other thing, there is a lot of attention on China's soft power. And uh, I remember last time we talked, it was about CCTV Africa and the television opening on the continent. Uh, I think, paradoxically, uh, the, the the dramatic improvement in hardware uh, uh, coming from China is also serving uh, a very important role uh, in changing the image uh, of uh, what China is doing in Africa. I think we also the the recent Afrobarometer um, um, study about perception of China in Africa. It was very interesting to notice that uh, the bad quality of Chinese product uh, is what's uh, caused negative perception. And infrastructure development uh, is what uh, uh, is at the base of positive perception of Africa. When we talk about ICT, these are called uh, are caught in a paradox. Uh, they are infrastructure; they are very expensive, but you can't see them. 
So the money that China pour into technology, the big money we have been talking about, uh, is not really there to catch the eye as much as a highway or, or a stadium would. Uh, at the same time, the little technology, the handset, uh, is what people have in their hands all the time. And so it's by improving the handset that actually some of the perception might change and are actually changing. Uh, and this is another very interesting space uh, uh, to look at. It's fascinating because I think you're right that I think China deserves far more credit and the Chinese companies in the private sector for what they've done to improve ICT in Africa than than they get. And so, you know, and a lot of it's just out of sight and people don't understand, you know, the 3G dongle that's connected to their PC, which is Huawei or Lenovo, um, you know, on their Lenovo or Huawei or ZDE or Xiaomi device and connected to Huawei networks, connected to fiber that's laid down by the Chinese. And all of that's out of sight, but it just magically happens. It is an absolutely fascinating, complicated contradictory topic. Uh, a lot of it's being discussed in Eugenio's new book, The Politics of Technology in Africa, that will be coming out soon. Eugenio, when can we expect to see this on bookstores and Kindle pages soon? The official date is 30th of November, so just in a few weeks. Just in a few weeks. Well, Eugenio Gagliardoni is a, he teaches, at media, teaches media and communications at the University of Witzwaterswan in South Africa, alongside Cobus in the same department. Are you guys in the same hallway there? Oh, yes, we're literally a few offices down from each other. <laughs> okay. So you have no excuse now not to come back on our show. Uh, and he's also an associate research fellow <laughs> in new media and human rights at the University of Oxford. I, again, congratulations on the book. Uh, I know that you are pretty active on Twitter. And so if people want to follow you and kind of stay on top of both your maybe your talks to promote the book and also what you're thinking and writing about these days, what's the best way for people to follow you on Twitter? is uh, my first name, which is Eugenio, with an E at the end, Eugenio E. Can you spell that for us? It's I-G-I-N-I-O-E. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.